Lord, thank you so much for another opportunity for us to gather with brothers and sisters and to open up your word, in particular, Psalm 4. Lord, we ask that you would just continue to broaden our minds and our hearts, educate us, instruct us, certainly rebuke us and correct us, Lord. Um, align us with your will and your covenant of grace. Lord, just continue to adorn us with those graces that are, Lord, ours in Christ that we might display openly to the world uh, to whom we belong. And so, Lord, we will certainly give you all the praise and the glory for the, uh, our sanctification and our growth in grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Um, you, if you have your Bibles open to Psalm 4, I'm going to read those eight verses and we'll get into our afternoon study. Uh, Psalm 4, an evening prayer of trust in God. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress and be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? But you know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. Have you, put, you have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Well, Psalm 4 is considered by many commentators to be a companion Psalm 2-3. We see in Psalm 3 that it's a morning devotion. Psalm 4, uh, if it's true and is coupled with it, it's an evening devotion. Now, there are some, I guess, questions that come along with that, and that is if Psalm 3 is addressing Absalom, then what is the occasion of Psalm 4? And most commentators admit they don't know. They don't know if it's another occasion of that season of rebellion um, with Absalom. And David is again uh, writing a psalm in the context of that struggle and distress. Or, and this. Uh, that's not uncommon, but then there's others that say that Psalm 4 is really related to David's long, long, um, long season of adversity with Saul. Now that could be the case. Because remember, it's not like David was pinning these Psalms and they were compiling them at that time. That's not the case at all. In fact, we believe that Ezra, a scribe and prophet, much later than David, assembled the Psalms together and put them in its form that we have here, 
okay? So it could very well, one be addressing Absalom and this one addressing Saul, or that's the context of it. And then, of course, we see that these are both morning and evening devotions. So keep that in mind as we work through the psalm. Again, like Psalm 3, not many verses. In fact, eight in Psalm 3, eight in Psalm 4. So this psalm is an expression of a believer's trust in God and a believer's trust in God is never more visible than when under distress. I don't even think about that. A believer's trust in God is never more visible than when the believer is in distress. Some affliction. The greater the distress, the greater the affliction, the more fervent the devotion looks. Not, not, in, not fake, but the more, the more energetic the believer's devotion. And I believe that is true of us. I believe it's true of David in Psalm 4. Whenever, I mean, again, it makes sense that Small afflictions require small prayers. Large afflictions require greater prayers because our heart is more stretched and burdened and therefore we spend more time laying out our, our life before our Heavenly Father. And there's nothing that distresses one more than family, Psalm 3, and friends, Psalm 4. I mean, I'm, I'm going to assume the fact that Psalm 4 is related to Saul because it does seem to indicate there's a long, a, a long period of time in these verses. And we know that Absalom's rebellion was not a long period of time. It was a fairly short period of time and that it was dealt with um, fairly quickly. Yet, in Psalm 4, we see David's distress over the affliction of a friend. David looked up to King Saul. He was a mentor to him, a father-in-law. He was the king, and of course, we know historically that Saul was very jealous of David. The kingdom had been taken away from Saul and God was giving it over to this young man and Saul was not very pleased with that. And Saul very much exhibited great animosity and hatred and bitterness toward David to the point the scriptures tell us that Saul did throw a spear at him, that Saul did try in one sense to kill David. He did not want David in his presence. And what was interesting is there was in, in his hypocrisy and inconsistency, or we might call it in his bipolarity, that he would often rail at David and then call David into his presence to play instruments for him and soothe his soul. So there was just great instability 
in this relationship. Well, and when we look at a believer's response or dependence upon God being more, li- more lively in the midst of difficulty, we see in verse one that, that the, this grace of prayer is always prominent with believers. The grace of prayer, answer me when I call. David is obviously referring to prayer. Prayer is essential, beloved. It's an essential Christian grace. It's an essential grace of the Old Testament believers. We find God's people praying. Praying when times are good, but especially when times are very bad or when times are stressful when there is distress, when there is great turmoil, when there's war, when there's affliction, when there's some type of personal um, affliction. It could be uh, health, but primarily and, and most of the time it was related to others. Persecution, judgment, chastisements, being wrong, that, that kind of thing. Probably something we all know a little bit about. I mean, I, I know we have some young people here that probably among siblings and upon family and kinfolk, there's, you know, um, always some breaking, hurting of feelings and whatnot. And as you grow older, you'll probably find, especially in church, feelings do get hurt. Betrayal happens. There are... Uh, Unfortunately, oftentimes there are schisms and groups divided up in the church and things happen that cause the saints great distress. Here, David exercises this grace prominently. This is evident in his life, just as it was evident in the life of Jesus. Jesus was a man of prayer. The Bible tells us that Jesus sought out many opportunities of prayer. We often find him praying through the night. In fact, we, the Bible tells us that the night, the night before he chose the disciples, the 12 out of the 70, he prayed through the night, seeking God's face, seeking wisdom, seeking God's will on who to call to this grand ministry, if you will, of grace. We know on the night of his affliction, before his crucifixion, Jesus sought private opportunity to pray before God and took three of his friends with him to go up with him and watch as he prayed. And we know that Gethsemane account, don't we? Where he prayed so ardently that he sweat, as it were, drops of blood believing, um, listening to one doctor uh, sort of give commentary on that, that more than likely blood vessels in his forehead had burst and was mingling down in his sweat, okay? That's, that's how strenuous the prayer had become. We know he threw himself on the ground when he got to the place where he was to pray. I mean, the, the point being that Jesus was an a man of prayer. David is a man of prayer. We need to be people of prayer. We need to be men and women of prayer. We need to be young people of prayer. I will say this, 
there are times when you are too busy to stop and pray. You can always pray in your mind. You can always pray silently in your head as you work along and whatnot, but you have to concentrate on things you're doing. You young people have a great opportunity right now in your life to develop prayerful habits, habits of prayer. You don't have the responsibilities of adults. If you're single, you don't have the responsibility of a spouse, of a husband, of a wife. Spend time in prayer. Utilize the opportunities that you have with grace. Paul even uses that example in Corinthians 7. If you are single, what does Paul say? Remain single. He said, that's my advice to you. Now, culturally and in the context, things were heating persecutions were heating up, we're, we're getting into that uh, reign and rule of Nero, if you will. Things weren't going well, and it, it was very dangerous to be a Christian. And of course, when you marry in that context, not only are you taking the responsibility of your own life in your hands, you are assuming the responsibility of another. And of course, with a marriage comes children. And you are taking those responsibilities. And so I think Paul was giving this, this wise counsel to those who had found themselves in opportunities. He says clearly, he says, if you are single, devote yourself to the Lord. Paul, he, uh, Paul David here shows great devotion to the Lord by his fervent prayer life. He was a man of prayer. And it says there in verse one that he calls out, he says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. It, I believe what David is saying here is that he's calling upon God to render a judgment in this case. These people, I'm being persecuted, I'm being sought after. I'm being slandered. That, we'll deal with that a little bit in the next couple of verses. David is being accused of things he's not guilty of. And I think he's asking God, who is not only the source of his own personal righteousness, but I think what David is saying is, look, I am I'm innocent in, these, in this cause. I've, this is not my fault. These men slander me. And so, God, my righteousness, you answer my call, my prayer. My prayer for what? Well, my prayer of relief. He says right there, you have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. I mean, this fits perfectly with what we've learned this morning about grace. That grace is not just a a thing, it's a power, it's an, it's an influence, it's an energy, it's an adornment, it's gifts, it's favor, it's kindness. In here, David is exercising the grace of prayer, calling upon the God of grace to come and be his shield of righteousness to render judgment in this matter. And David, I mean, you have to be able to say when you call upon God to come as the God of your righteousness, you have to be innocent in the matter. You, you need to judge yourselves. 
You, you, you need to, you know, um, uh, you, you need to make sure that you lay yourself before the word of God. And if there is fault, confess it. Repent of it. Not only repent to God, but if, if it's a brother or a sister that you've uh, offended, go to them and make it right. I'm not going to address if they reject you. I'm just saying this is what you do. So we see that the psalmist or the believer desires what? Vindication. He desires guidance in his adversity. Here's my affliction. I'm calling upon God to come and give me guidance and to be my strength. He pleads for God's mercy and attentiveness in verse 1. In Hebrews chapter four, we are told in affliction to draw near to Jesus Christ. Draw near to the throne of grace whereby we might receive what? Grace and mercy. And David is doing this in the Old Testament church. He's doing this by calling upon the triune God as that king of grace and mercy. That's the source of it. Jesus is promised. He hasn't yet come. And so he's calling upon God for this grace and mercy. Look at verse two. In verse two, David addresses those who, who seek um, uh, to dishonor him, he says, oh, sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? He's addressing those who are slandering him. He's addressing those who are taking, let's say this, those who are for Saul, who are unwilling to examine the case, who just assume that David's the scoundrel. Now, why would I say that? Because aren't we in a habit of doing those things? That is, if we don't like someone, what do we do? What do we do? We judge them. We judge them. If we don't like them, we all, we, we, it's so easy to assume they're wrong when we hear negative reports. And David's calling upon God to come and be his vindication, but he says, why, how long? That is, in, in this season of things, you've not worked this out, you've not examined yourself, you've not examined the case, and how long, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Remember, beloved, God had chosen David to replace Saul. Some didn't like it. Saul certainly didn't like it. draw your attention back to a comment I made about the church in Corinthians. Remember I said God was the great architect and engineer. Who decides who leads God's people? God does. Who's orchestrated, who's organized, who's ordered it? Who, who's, in whose mind, if you will, because God doesn't have a brain like we do. Remember, God's a spirit. But in God's mind, where did all of this order and structure and polity originate? In his, in his mind. It's his will. It's how he has ordained it to be. 
And so to rail against David would to rail against God in this matter. Just like in Corinthians, for those who had self-designated, the self-designated super apostles, for them to stir up the congregation to rail against Paul for one reason or another is to rail against Christ. And so David here, he, he, in the psalm, he's calling out to them. It's interesting. He's addressing their, their sin, their dishonor. He's, he's recognizing, if you will, that how, how wrong they are, but also he calls them to repentance. Notice in verse 2, the end of verse 2, how long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Now, again, this psalm in this matter is, takes, is the, has the position, David's innocent in this case. He's righteous. He's not guilty of any of these accusations of this slander or this murmuring. And that's why he could state what he did here. But, but notice in verse three, he says, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. And the Lord hears when I call to them. I mean, David is defending himself. David's not rolling over on the matter. David, in one sense, calls them to account. He says, why, why are you doing these things? Haven't you not judged this matter rightly? Why do you keep being a reproach? And why are you uh, involved in things that are worthless and aim at deception, deceiving others? Why, if I slander you, I'm deceiving others about you. If I lie about Aubrey, I've deceived you with the lie. And of course, verse three is a promise that is very, I think, key to the psalm. Because why would we devote ourselves to an ardent, a very uh, energetic prayer life if verse three wasn't true? To know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself and the Lord hears when I call to him. Isn't that the promise that we look for? To stimulate us and to excite us to prayer? Isn't that why we pray, beloved? What good is it for us to spend any amount of time in prayer if God is not listening to us? If we don't believe that we are his and he is ours? I think that's why a lot of professing Christians don't pray because they don't believe that. I think that's why hypocrisy is exposing itself. Brothers and sisters, I wanna say something, and I, I, I judge myself with this. It's gonna be hard to convince anyone you're a Christian if you are not a praying person. It is. If you don't seek God's face, Now, I'm not saying, you know, if you didn't pray yesterday, you're not a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is this. A Christian seeks to talk to God. 
a believer seeks to talk to God. And there is never a better time to talk to God than when in great distress. And it's, it's sad when we find ourselves in a difficult situation And we're finding ourselves on our knees, possibly weeping before the scriptures, crying out to God. And we remember, it's been a long time since I've, cried, since I've really cried out to God. It's been a long time since I've really prayed to God. And of course, God uses these seasons in our life to do what? To awaken us, to energize us, to, to call us to these graces that are well, so wonderful and so amazing that are ours in, in, in him. Notice verse three again, to know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for him. Now, that's sanctification. Sanctification is the setting apart. That's the, the calling out of the world, is it? God has set apart the godly for himself. That's why the church has designated the apple of God's eye. That's why, how important is this truth, this promise? Well, it's so important on judgment day in Matthew 25 when you're standing before the judge of all the world and, and, and heaven and earth when he says, well, you know, I was sick and you didn't bring me any medicine. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was homeless and you gave me no shelter. Well, Lord, when, did, when were you naked? When, when were you, didn't have a place to live? Lord, when, when were you hungry? When you did not do it to the least of these, you did it to me. That's the in, intimate connection that God has with the godly. <laughs> They're his. You think um, and, and that's why there's the, the, the closer the relationship in the affliction, the, the greater the hurt. Closer the relationship, the greater the hurt. Now notice what David says. He says, now again, verse three is a climax verse of the psalm. It's the promise. It's the it's that which stimulates all of us here this afternoon to really cultivate a, a faithful prayer life, if you will, because the Lord hears when I call upon him. But now look at verse four. This is the call to repentance in verse four. In verse four, what does he say? Tremble and do not sin. Meditate on your heart upon your bed and be still. Now, he's talking to his adversaries. He's talking to those who sinned against him. He's talking to those who had, who had slandered him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate on your heart or uh, meditate in your heart on your bed and be still. 
offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. He's calling them to faith in God and trust. He's not recognizing that they're believers. He's saying, no, no, you act like an unbeliever. I'm calling you to repentance and trust in God and faith. Now, faith is also seen in these sacrifices. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness, meaning that it's not just, David is not just saying, ask my forgiveness. He's not doing that. No, David takes it beyond himself. Oh, don't just ask my forgiveness. You need to turn to God and ask his forgiveness for what you've done. And it needs to go beyond just in your mind and your heart where he says, and do not sin, meditate on your heart, on your bed and be still. But know what? Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. That's worship. The offering up in the old covenant church in that first administration of grace, remember the offering of sacrifices was part of worship. They were to go and, uh, and express, that is, here's the way it worked. I'm just giving you this picture. First of all, the, the sinner comes to this, this understanding they've sinned against God. Now, they don't wait to go to church to offer a sacrifice or to the temple. No. What do they do? They cry to God. They cry to God when, they, when that revelation happens and they ask for forgiveness and then there is this restoration, if you will, of relationship between them and God. Oh God, cleanse me of my sinfulness. Cleanse my tongue of its slander and abuse. Lord, forgive me of the way I have treated thy servants. The going and offering the sacrifice of righteousness was the fruit of repentance. How many times, oh, wait a minute, let me back up, erase that. If you have struggled with certain things and sins in your life and you wonder, why do I keep falling into these? I want you to think about whether or not you really offered true repentance. Here's why. True repentance. Repentance is revealed in the fruit of repentance. There's the confession made to God and then there is the going and buying and purchasing a sacrifice. There's going to make sure that the sacrifice is gonna be pleasing to the Lord and then there's the appointment made to the priest that I go and offer the sacrifice and I go and admit that this is the fruit of my repentance. This is the outworking of my, work, of my worship and devotion to God that what I confess with my lips is the true reflection of my my changed heart. Too often believers rest solely upon the words, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Forgive me. And there's, there's no restitution. There's no fruit. I can give you a, an easy illustration I mean, if I, I'm going to use this dear brother Aubrey as an example because he knows I love him dearly. But if I go and I wrong Aubrey, 
let's just get follow up on the previous comment about my slander of Aubrey. What does that fruit of repentance look like in that situation? Not only do I go to Aubrey and I ask Aubrey's forgiveness, I say, Aubrey, I went to Zimmy and I slandered you. And then I went to Esther and I slandered you. I'm sorry, I'm asking your forgiveness. I'm convicted. It was wrong. I've sinned against you and I've sinned against the Lord and I've asked the Lord's forgiveness and now I'm asking your forgiveness. And he goes, I forgive you. Then I go to Zimmy. Here's the sacrifice of righteousness. I go to Zimmy and I say, Zimmy, I, I lied to you and I sinned against Aubrey. I sinned against God and I sinned against you. And I want you to know I did that. I'm ashamed of it. I'm asking you to forgive me and I'm asking you to pray for me. The bitterness in my heart was expressed and exposed against my brother Aubrey. I'm, it was ugly and sinful. I'm asking your forgiveness and I go to Esther and I do the same thing. See, I could have easily went to Aubrey and never said anything to them. But I have to go offer this this sort of sacrifice of righteousness. I have to do what's right. That's what David is saying here in this situation. He is saying, listen, um, uh, where am I here? Uh, Tremble, do not sin. Meditate on your heart upon your bed. Be still, think about these things. The meditation of your heart is in relationship to the law of God. Look back at Psalm 1. I know it's close by in your Bible. What does he say? He says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And what does he do? He meditates day and night upon this law. What's this law doing in his life? It's reforming him. It's convicting him. It's supporting righteousness. It's it's attacking sin. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. See, that's the ultimate goal. Even if I do these things, I'll have to put my faith in the Lord for these things. I have to trust the Lord for the forgiveness of these ladies. I have to trust the Lord for Aubrey's forgiveness. And then I have to trust the Lord that there would be an opportunity to, for me to demonstrate I'm no longer angry and bitter at Aubrey. Because that's what slander is. It's an expression of bitterness. It's an expression of, of dislike, hatred. It's in that same tree, root tree. It's in that same root system and spectrum. That's why we slander. That's why we attack. That's why we, we fight, right? Look at verse 6. Verse six and seven, obviously there's an exhortation for them to put their faith in God and certainly not man, right? Not in Saul, (laughs) but not even in David, right? That that is not even in me, but in, in the Lord. Men should never 
call others to put their faith and trust in them, not in these types of matters. I mean, it's one thing to make a promise and it's another thing to be faithful on a human horizontal level, but brothers and sisters, we're talking about grand matters. We're not talking about like, I'm gonna promise to bring you home a cookie or something like that. These are big things, these are grand things, and we should always direct all people to what? Put their trust in God. That's the exhortation, trust in him. He's trustworthy. What did Paul say this morning? God is faithful. Has anything changed as far as the church is concerned? Has the focus, the attention, the message, if you will, even though Christ now has come and he's taken his seat at the Father's right hand where he's renewing the heavens and earth, if you will, What's the, what's, what's the commandment? Trust in the Lord. God is faithful. In verse six and seven, many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord, for you have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. I think the end of verse eight is the other complimentary, complimentary promise to verse three. For in these last three verses, what we find is that there is this confidence in the Lord. There is not only the call to trust in the Lord, but even for the believers, what many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. Lord, show yourself. Lifting up the light of your countenance upon us is an act of favor. I look favorably favorably on what? My children, right? We look favorably on our friends. Lord, come to us and lift up your countenance on us. Show us favor. Demonstrate, Lord, your kind favor to us. What a request. Even in this midst of affliction, and danger, because Saul was going to try to kill David. I mean, he was attempting to kill David. This is a life and death issue. Even in the midst of our own cultural demise and upside downness and darkness, what do we do? We call upon God, Lord, lift up your countenance upon us. Demonstrate that you are the God of your children. He can do that easily. For you put gladness in our hearts. You know what gladness for the heart that's filled with gladness. And notice what he says, that this divine gladness is greater than earthly pleasure in the one sense. It's not the same as what he says in verse seven at the end, more than grain and wine. It's one thing to enjoy the 
pleasantries of life, which we are to enjoy. And in fact, it's sinful not to enjoy a harvest. In fact, in the Old Testament, there was an extra celebration tithe that God's people were to go and take this celebration tithe. It was above the other normal tithe and they were to spend it on their celebration. We call them like vacations. They were to spend it and enjoy the, and all the time, all the while, what were they supposed to be telling themselves and, and being thankful of? For God's grace, for God's mercy, for God's provision. And this is what he does. He says, his, notice what he says, for you have put gladness in my heart. That's, that's that, that energetic, efficacious grace. I have seen people in situations, prayed with them. I was sadder than they were and I wasn't the one being afflicted. I left the meeting amazed at God's grace in their life. And what's David saying? The Lord has put gladness in my heart in this matter. Brothers and sisters, this is what this is a gift that God gives to the righteous in affliction. It doesn't mean that there's not sadness. It just means that there is an overriding gladness that believers have, that Christians have, because it's divinely given. You don't conjure it up. There's not a scheme. There's not three steps. There's, there's no vitamin you can take. There's no food group you can avoid. It's divinely given to you by God and it produces the grace of gladness, joy, contentment. I'm content. Listen, if I'm having to run from the king and I'm having to sleep out under the stars and hide in caves, what does gladness look like? I'm content to do what I have to do to spare my own life and the life of my own compatriots until God says it's done, it's over. That's what gladness looks like. We don't sit on YouTube and create a video about what we don't like and complain about it. We don't create, we don't get on Instagram and, and go into a rant about something and just epic complaints. That's not, you want to complain, complain to God. Take your complaints to God. He'll listen to you. He'll hear you. This joy comes from God. And this joy is greater than the pleasures of this world. It's divine. Verse eight, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. I mean, 
there's the promise of security. The promise of security. I mean, David is out in the, you know, in the wilderness. He's out under the stars. I mean, he doesn't have locks. There's no gates. There's no walls to keep the enemy out. There's no moats that the enemy has to cross. He's just out in the wilderness exposed to the elements. Pretty insecure. And yet, David's faith is being exhibited in his trust and confidence in God by saying, when I lie down at light and I sleep, I don't have a problem. I'm resting in the Lord. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell. And he gives God the credit for it. This peace that I have is not of my own doing. It's a grace of God. It's a gift I'm empowered to be at peace because God has planted peace in my heart. I am empowered, if you will, to demonstrate a cool, calm, and collective attitude when my brothers look at me, but my security is given to me by God, and I, therefore, trust in him. Brothers and sisters, We are all more than likely guilty of taking credit for the things God does in our lives that are good. You know, when somebody says, how can you be so calm in this matter? Well, that's just my disposition. That's you know, the way I am. How can you be so, you know, uh, calm? And I, it, because God has put trust and confidence in my heart. And God has given me the grace to stand firm and to even rest Insecurity. You think about innocent people that are thrown in jail. How scared they may be, how fearful they may be, right? They don't belong there. That's not their environment. I mean, there are some people that are thrown in jail. That's their environment. That's, they have no problem. That's, they can thrive in that environment. But there's a lot of others that can't. And they have to learn to put their trust in the Lord that he's watching over them. And he has their best interest in mind. I mean, that's just one scenario. That's more. So, beloved, Psalm 4 is an evening devotion of trust. Different from Psalm 3. Similar, but different. This one, I think helps us to understand that all that is provided for us is divinely given to us by God. He's not only our righteousness, he's the shield of our righteousness. He's the judge of our righteousness. I would encourage you, if you have Calvin's commentary, to read his comments on Psalm 4. I think you would be, I think you would be greatly encouraged well, let's pray and then we can answer some questions. Father in heaven, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for the circumstance that surrounds the instruction of this psalm. Lord, we know it was a hardship on Davis, but David, but that providence is instructive to us. It's literally written that we might learn from it. 
And even though he had to go through this great hardship, we glean and benefit from that providence. So Lord, as you instructed David, instruct us, help us in the midst of our afflictions, in the midst of our difficult providences, Lord, that we would act in them like, well, gracious Christians, grace Christians, Christians that have been gifted with grace, empowered by grace, and adorned with grace. Help us, Lord, walk faithfully, and help us call others to repentance in righteousness, and call others to confess their sins and put their trust in God and worship you in faith and truth. Lord, let us not forget that. So be with us, my brothers and sisters, be with this body, this church, Lord, this visible expression of your church. Lord, continue to guide us, instruct us, and sanctify us, Lord, according to your most marvelous and holy will. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, are there any questions concerning those two psalms?